That's Bards. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for being so patient with us as we trudge along in our own lives, as we get hung up on the details of life, Father. Thank you for always being patient with us, and thank you for your renewed faithfulness to us as your children each and every morning, as your word states. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening, that earnestly desire to be here, but for whatever reason, illness or what have you, cannot be here. And we pray most of all for those still lost in this world, Father, that you might humble them before it's too late. For that, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this even a reality. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, God sees the heart, but the world sees the choices we make. Part 16, I loved Tuesday's message. Um, so thank you, Scott, for listening to the Spirit. Always, always appreciated. I want to revisit a passage that has been, I guess what you'd call a staple in our messages as of late up here on the board. Luke 10, 41 to 42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Remember the scene was that Martha was worried about cleaning the house, and she even complained to the Lord about her sister not helping her, and the Lord set that record straight right away, that Mary had it right, and Martha was too hung up on the details of life, even not... Uh, doting on the Messiah in her presence, uh, which is something we can all relate to. And that's why the Spirit's been using this particular passage as sort of a launching pad for our studies. And I'll steal from uh, Tuesday's message. All things pale in comparison to sitting at His feet and taking in His Word. All things pale. And that's a big word. All is an all-inclusive word. I mean, it includes everything. Um, and everything pales in comparison. Think about just the privilege of being here this evening. Think about the privilege of having that Bible in front of you. Think about the privilege of having God the Holy Spirit minister to you as you're sitting here listening to the Word, listening to this message. These are all unbelievable privileges, and we cast them off. And that's the whole point. For what? Like Martha? Where we're concerned and preoccupied with the details of life and we're letting each precious day go by each day that we could be um, fellowshipping with the Lord and that's really what the Spirit's been saying so again all things pale in comparison to sitting at his feet and taking in his word and that is a wonderfully intimate perspective uh, that is worth a whole afternoon of contemplation. Uh, afternoons, let's pluralize it, right? Whole afternoons of contemplation on each of our parts. 
not just tonight, not just say, oh, what a convicting message. No. Like, spend afternoons, plural, thinking about these things. Thinking about where the Lord's trying to take you in your life and where you want to take yourself. And what's the distinction? What, is there a chasm between these two things? I was reflecting on this. I think about how many times, um, how many wasted moments I've spent searching for and even spending valuable time fixated on things that were nothing more than counterfeits. I just look back on my own life, 49 years now, and I think about all the time that I've wasted. I'm not condemned about it, but it makes me sad that I could have spent a lot more, way more time at his feet, way more time focused on him. But I was distracted by counterfeits. And as the Spirit has brought out in our studies over the course of this series, the basis for such futile efforts is counterfeit love. I've shared this with you. Um, counterfeit love is always seems to be the thing that is most attractive or tends to take us away from our first love. And maybe it's even the pursuit of said counterfeit love. I was thinking about that as well. Um, we humans, we love shiny new objects, don't we? <laughs> we do. I mean, what is one of the first things you do when you get something new? You show everyone. Oh, check it out. Look at what I got. Woo. Right? We love shiny new objects. Why do you think there are so many clothing stores? Seriously, why do you think there are so many clothing stores? Is it really because we need new clothes? Because we're without? <laughs> Is it really? I mean, look at Scott's pants. I mean, he might be the only one that needs new clothes. So we're going to take up a collection after class. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. That's a classic. It was good on you, though. Anyways. Anyways. Is it really that we need new clothes? Seriously? Why is it? Why? I mean, people spend probably, literally, probably, if, if not hundreds, probably thousands of dollars a year on clothing. Or is it because we want new clothes because we like new things? Imagine for a moment that you no longer had any extraneous wants. Just try to do that for a moment. Say, ah, geez, I'm, I'm going to pretend for a moment that I have no extraneous wants whatsoever. Take all the things that distract you. That means no new clothing, hairdos, cars, sports paraphernalia, etc., etc. You choose your poison. In the absence of all these worldly distractions, here's the big question. What would be left? In the absence of all these worldly distractions, because these are, these are not needs, these are wants. If all of a sudden you had no desire whatsoever to fulfill your wants, let's just say you were delivered from that in a moment for a day. You don't want any new clothes, you don't want any new whatever it is you buy, and whatever you, is you preoccupy yourself with. What would be left? Wouldn't that be re like really relaxing? Wouldn't that be almost like freedom? Yeah. 
That's what would be left, freedom. Freedom from the bondage of worldly distractions. I was thinking about the single woman that Paul wrote about. Go to 1 Corinthians 7.32. 1 Corinthians 7.32. What would be left? That's a good question. How much time in a single day do you spend? All right, I'll just be honest with you. I finished preparing, right? I have like 15 minutes left. I come out, I haunt a few people, make fun of Scott's pants, and I go back in, stir the pot, go back in. I go on Craigslist. What am I on Craigslist doing? I'm looking at RVs. If I came with an RV, I mean, there'd be problems. I don't need, I need an RV like a hole in the head, right? But I'm on Craigslist like, oh, that's a nice one. Look at that. I could see myself in that, right? Why am I not in the Bible? Serious, I got 15 minutes. Why am I not taking that 15 minutes maybe to read a passage? Nope, I'm on Craigslist looking at stuff I don't need. 1 Corinthians 7.32 But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. I actually... Uh, taught a whole series on that, a mini-series back in the day, undistracted devotion to the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying. There are real benefits to not being distracted by the things of the world. Up here on the board. Excuse me. 1 Corinthians 7.35, the Living Bible, just another translation. I am saying this to help you, not to try to keep you from marrying. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few other things as possible to distract your attention from him. That's a wonderful perspective for all of us to think about. Now, although this passage concerns marriage, like all baseline principles in the Bible, the impetus for it is the same for married folks on here, up here on the board. Undistracted devotion to the Lord. This refers to a life void of distractions that take you away from your first love to borrow from Revelation 2.4. Anything. Say it with me. What? Anything. Some of you need to have that tattooed on your forearm. Seriously. Forget the sailor tattoo. Anything. Anything that creates a distance between you and Christ is evil. No matter how you spin it, no matter how you want to spin it, it's a counterfeit meant to take you away from your first love. Things that orient you to your first love, those are good. Things that take you away from your first love, those are evil. And it doesn't mean the person is evil that you're thinking about right now, or the, the car is evil. I mean, a car is just a car. It's what you think of these things. It's how you approach these things in your own life it's the focus that you give these things if they if that focus takes you away from your first love 
then it's evil. Because everything is meant to draw us to him. Again, undistracted devotion to the Lord. This refers to a life void of distractions that take you away from your first love. Anything that creates a distance between you and Christ is evil. So we all need to evaluate our lives on this point on the board. And not just fleetingly. Not just, oh, wow, Thursday evening, rainstorm, come to class and I get convicted on this thing. And then you leave and it's the thunderstorm again and the football game. So not just fleetingly, but consistently evaluating ourselves and without making up ridiculous excuses. That's the other thing we do. What do I mean by ridiculous excuses? Well, here's a few to seed the hopper in case you're kind of playing dumb right now. Well, I have to make money. Got to go to work. Got to make money. I can't neglect my kids. I have to look good for my spouse. God wants me to enjoy his blessings. Here's what I have to say about that. Check your presuppositions. Check your presuppositions. For example, on that note, well, I have to make money. Well, is it possible? You tell, and you sit down with the Lord, and you be honest. Is it possible that maybe you're supporting wants rather than actual needs? Is it possible that you're supporting wants? I mean a list of wants rather than needs. Do you really need to spend that much money on housing? Do you really need to spend that much money on vehicles, clothing, whatever it is that you, you work so hard for? Who's, whose dream are you after anyways? Is it the American dream? Remember I wrote that blog a long time ago. The American dream is a farce. It's a trap. I mean, if God blesses you out and you can afford a house with a picket fence, so be it. But people are literally enslaved to the American dream. And most people, most so-called Christians, would rather chase after the American dream than actually open their Bible. There's no time to open their Bible because, like I said, well, I have to make money. Well, that's true, but... Are you supporting needs or wants? Because I think I just saw you at the loft. Or I just saw you at, I don't know, guys, where the heck do you guys shop? Chess King, Scott? <laughs> oh, man, you are just getting beat up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where, where do you guys shop? I don't know. I shop at Marshalls, so, because I'm cheap. But even then... I could technically show up every night in a, in a T-shirt, as long as it wasn't distracting. Have to keep it loose. <laughs> I'm just kidding. As long as it's not distracting, as long as it's just clothing, technically that's all I need, right? We don't need this building. 
with the beautiful paint and the air condition and the ceiling fans and the pocket. We don't need that stuff technically. Stuff to think about. Go to Luke 12, 22. So this first example, well, I have to make money. That seems to be everybody's excuse. Hey, how come you, I was pursuing my career. All right. How's that working out? Luke 12, 22. <clears throat> and he said to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows what you need, that you need these things. In other words, the rest of the world, the unbelievers, that's all they fo- Their entire life, I wrote a blog on this a couple of weeks ago. Their entire life is focused on the details. Managing and dominating, if you would, and manipulating and controlling the details of life. Where we can just say, God's got it under control. If I have a need, he'll meet it. You either have that faith or you don't. That's why he says, you men of little faith. You either have that faith or you don't. So if you're using that excuse, well, I have to make money. Uh, what's going on? Do you, I, do you have real faith? Do you have faith in your ability to meet your own objectives? Or do you have faith in God to meet your needs? Because the rest of the world is really good at the prior, meeting its own needs. That's what God allows to happen in the world. But you're not of the world. That's the whole point. For all these things, the nations of the world eagerly seek. They spend all their time focused on such things. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. Get your perspective right, in other words. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. And just a little side note on Luke 12 to 33, some may wrongly assume Jesus was teaching we all should sell all of our possessions and give to charity. However, that's a contextual mistake, and likely one that is purposely made by, let's call them prosperity gospel morons. People that are saying, yeah, sell everything, give it to the church, because you know, I'm the guy getting the money from the church. Jesus was referring to people who had amassed wealth because their hearts were tied to it. In other words, they were what I'll call handcuffed to wealth. Jesus wanted people to get their perspective right. You can have money. You can have a nice car. You can have a home. There's nothing wrong with those things. They can be, in right light, considered blessings given to us by God. 
but you can't be handcuffed to those things. You understand? You can't be, let's say, in a very fundamental way, missing out on this to maintain that. That's the distinction. Handcuffed to wealth. The person who defends their distractions with, well, I have to make money, is the person handcuffed to their wealth. 1 Timothy 6.10, Hebrews 13.5. That is the fundamental reason for Jesus' retort in Luke 12.33. Sell your possessions. Get rid of the ties. In other words, snip all the ties. You have problems with money. You don't have the capacity for it. It's dominating you. Your old sin nature loves it. Teshuka, the whole nine yards. You need to sever your ties to the things that are keeping you away from me. So if any of these things keep you away from the Lord, your first love, to our first point this evening, cut it off, cut it, let it go. Sell your possessions, not because you should be broke, but because they, you're tied to these things, and he doesn't want your perspective tied to earthly things. So he gets down to the root cause of the issue with a very simple statement <clears throat> following the sell your possessions one, and that is verse 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let's quickly see those other two verses uh, on the board. Go to 1 Timothy 6.10. 1 Timothy 6.10. And we'll think about how we started this evening with counterfeit love. Counterfeit love. That is the thing that typically draws us away from our first love. It's love for Jesus or love for some counterfeit. Because there is no replacement for his love, of course. But we can, have, we can fall in love with something like money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money. That's a counterfeit love. That's a counterfeit love. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of what? Evil. That's right. It's evil to love something more than Christ even. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. How about Hebrews 13.5? Go there. <clears throat> Hebrews 13.5. We're just filling in the blanks uh, on, the, on the principle on the board. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. That's a counterfeit love. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that you have to ask yourself, are you content with what you have? If God gives you a position, a lot in life, and you make a lot of money, but yet you're completely dedicated and devoted to the Lord, then so be it. But if he gives you a lot where you're broke all the time, but you have your needs. When I say broke, I'm using an American term. But you have your needs, your needs met, then you should be okay with that too. You should be content, as Paul would say, in whatever circumstances you find yourself. You know how it is. Sometimes you've got money and sometimes you don't. Whatever. Um, but it's about perspective and it's about counterfeit love. It's about lo something that you love more than Jesus. And for most Americans, it has some, it always, it's like, you know, six degrees from Kevin Bacon thing, right? There's always like a few degrees from money. It can be buried sometimes, uh, somehow, like, you know, it's kind of like a couple of layers away. But most Americans, it's about money. 
I mean, the stuff, the things that motivate us, the things we do. Money is somehow always behind um, most things that take us away from the Lord. Or romantic love. Probably romantic love is the number one, but whatever. Sometimes they're related. <laughs> Anyways, handcuffed to wealth. The person who defends their distractions with wealth, I have to make money, is the person handcuffed to their wealth. That is the fundamental reason for Jesus' retort. Sell your possessions. All right, back to our instigating point from 1 Corinthians 7.35. Up here on the board, what are we after? Undistracted devotion to the Lord. Undistracted devotion. This refers to a life void of distractions that take you away from your first love. Anything that creates a distance between you and Christ is evil. You have to think that way. There's no getting around it. There's no, you know, there's no, um, you know, lawyering with it. And there's no little fine print where you can say, oh, but, you know, I really love this person. I really, man, but this person's taking you away. It's not their fault. This person that you love is taking you away from your first love. It's not, it's not that person's fault. It's your fault. It's always you. You're the one who gets to make the decision about um, who you love and who you spend time with. Are you, figuratively speaking, at the Lord's feet? like Mary? Or are you tending to your house, like Martha, and complaining to the Lord about Mary's in your life? Hmm. So we have to guard against our own flesh's desire to make ridiculous excuses. So that was our first one. Well, I have to make money. Um, you know, again, the idea is that you check your presuppositions. Well, what's the supposition? The presupposition with well, I have to make money is I have to maintain this lifestyle of, of wants. I'm going to call them needs so nobody complains. I, oh my, I don't even want to get started on this one. I'm going to call them needs. And since we're all ridiculous Americans, we're all going to agree that a bunch of wants are actually needs. And then we can complain together like a ship of fools. And that's what we do. Oh, you poor baby. I know. I know, right? Those are like last year's fashion. It's like, oh, it's, I know, sweetie, I know. But I got it. That means I'm better than you. And you see how it goes? Well, I have to make money because my neighbor over there, what do we call it, keeping up with the Joneses, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Jones over there, well, God, you know, you see him torturing me. It's making me stumble, so give me money so I cannot stumble. If you loved me, Lord, you'd give me money so I can go shopping so I don't stumble. Because you see what's going on here. And oh, you're the one who put me here, right? And the Bible says, stay in the condition which I was called. So I'm staying in the position I was called. But you see, I'm stumbling because of John, the Joneses over here. So you need to fix this. That's a messed up, perverted way of thinking. Check your presuppositions. So we just noted the obvious one with money. But what about the other three? about, I can't neglect my kids. Your kids need Jesus, not soccer. Or PlayStation, whatever it is that you're working so hard for. Whatever it is you're trying to do for them. They need Jesus, not soccer. And you lead by example. You show your children that you love Jesus. That He's your first love. That you're not willing to take a promotion over this kind of a promotion. That you're not willing to set aside other things to prioritize Jesus. That's what you need to show your kids. Your kids need Jesus, not soccer. 
Got to take my kids to soccer practice. I mean, what am I going to do? It's not my fault they, have, they practice on Sundays or every day of the week. And they're so pooped out, tired, that they can't even think about picking up a Bible. Or You have to drag them to Bible class. God forbid they come with you to Bible class. I can't neglect my kids. How about your kids need Jesus, not soccer? How about I have to look good for my spouse? You mean for everyone else, right? Right? For yourself even, right? Who's this about? Is this really about your spouse? I'm not saying you don't want to look good for your spouse, but is this really about your spouse? Or is this about you? God wants me to enjoy his blessings. Well, his greatest blessings stem from abiding in his love. That is your first love. I always get a kick out of people. Oh, God blessed me out so much with all this stuff. Really? So he's going to put stuff in your life knowing that you're going to turn it for evil. You're saying just God blesses you out with things that own you now. You know that old saying, the things you own end up owning you? He's going to bless you out so that you, with, when you don't have the capacity for these things, but this is your contention, God's going to bless you out so much that you're going to walk away from your first love? Does that sound like something God, and God's omniscient, so he knew you would do it? Does that sound like something God would do? Hey, I'm going to bless you out so you run away from my son. <laughs> that don't sound like anything God would do. It sounds like the exact opposite. But yet, how many people, how many Christians say, God loves me, he's blessed me out so much with this and this and this. Well, why do all these things take you away from your first love? Are you sure these things are from God? Are you sure they're from God? I know it's the American Christian way that prosperity must equal blessing. But the kingdom of darkness can bless you out too. Matter of fact, it specializes in that. That's a fish. Hook, set the hook. Up, up, gotcha. Just sits there and reels you in the rest of your life. And you go off and say, oh, it's, it's God's blessing in my life. No. No, because anything that takes you away from Jesus is evil. So a lot of us have to reassess the so-called things we're calling blessings even in our lives. As the Spirit's pointed out abundantly over the years, we really don't need a whole lot to survive on. We really don't. In fact, I'd argue that we really have very few needs. That's biblical. It's not Ed Collins arguing. That's biblical. We really don't have that many needs. Jesus pointed out the greatest to Martha when he said in Luke 10, 42, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, don't worry about those things. You worry about this thing. I will take care of the rest. This is what's necessary, not that. You don't come in this direction. You don't go to the details first and earn your way to the sphere of love or deliverance or freedom with God. He says, you come to me first, and I'll give you what you need. It may not be everything you want, but I'll give you what you need. That was Martha's, oh, excuse me, Mary's perspective. Martha's was the other way around. 
And she was so twisted that she actually expected the Lord to agree with her. Isn't that what we do? We're so twisted. We actually expect, like the Joneses example, we actually expect the Lord to sympathize with us in our ridiculousness. But you see how they're making me stumble, they're making me stumble. I mean, you understand, right, Lord? Because you, you put her so... Eh. That's Martha. Mary was to hell with the Joneses. I'm going to sit here at my Lord's feet. I'm going to pick up my Bible. I'm going to bear my cross. I'm going to carry my cross daily. I'm going to take in the, the grace that comes from this ministry that I've been called to. All of it, including, yeah, I write a blog, by the way, including the blogs and everything else. I'm going to take all that stuff because that's what's necessary. That's what it means to seek first his kingdom. And then I'll leave the problems, the real problems from the world, the ones that the rest of the world just keeps focusing on, I'm going to leave that stuff up to the Lord. Because if he can take care of a bird, he can certainly he's going to take care of me. That's, that's the necessary perspective. But we love our ridiculous excuses, don't we? So he said that to Martha. But only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part. And then he demonstrated his beliefs when he said to those disciples that were concerned for his physical need to eat food. Up here on the board, we saw this. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, you know, remember the disciples were like, oh, he hasn't eaten, we should, like, take care of him. And he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Oh, man, this, this is a mind-blowing passage for me personally because it puts everything almost in reverse from what the world tells us. It puts everything in the other direction. My food is to do the will. Wait a minute. You mean you're not eating? My food is to do the will of him. Not talk about it, not just learn it, but actually do it like we've been, you know, like we've been learning for years now, actually doing, be a doer, not just someone who merely hears the truth and deludes themselves. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, what's going to fill my cup, what's going to fill me up, is to do the will of my Father. That's the necessary perspective. That's all the Spirit's saying. It's not rocket science. And some of you are like, this is like foreign, because I don't even think that way. I know. What American thinks this way? We've all been trained up to think in the wrong direction. Let me go take care of my stuff. It's like when the guy said, let me go bury my... F no, let the dead bury the dead, Jesus said. Let me go take care of the details of life and then I'll back my way in. When all this stuff's done, then I'll come in fellowship. And the Lord says, no, that's completely backwards. That is bass backwards. Completely backwards. And that's the lesson for this evening, really. And Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. Do you think, really think that Jesus was worried about starving to death? His disciples were worried about him starving, but he wasn't. Do you really think he was worried about starving to death? Do you really think he would have that much faith in his father? Comes out of heaven and then says, you know, I'm down here, so maybe you're going to forget about me. So maybe I'll, like, distract myself from your will and do a little extra work here in the carpentry business. 
That was a bug, by the way. Out of love, Jesus obeyed his Father in heaven. And from that position, his Father blessed his socks off. I mean, who was more blessed than Jesus? Who was given more strength to do than Jesus? Who had more faith than him? Out of love, Jesus obeyed his Father in heaven. And from that position, his Father blessed his socks off. And we could learn a lot here. Up here on the board, John 10, 17 to 18. For this reason, the Father loves me. Do you see there's a cause and effect here? For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. For this reason... The Father loves me because I obey Him, because my perspective is correct, because my focus is on the necessary thing, not the details. We can learn a lot. He wasn't just a windbag, right? He didn't just come down here and drop all these doctrines on us and then go back up to heaven and have like a steak dinner. Read Philippians 2. He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus' Father, our Father in heaven, blesses him in his love because out of love Jesus laid down his life for others. Reminds me of to he who has more shall be given. I hope you see the connective tissue here. The key concept at this point in our study is sacrifice. If you give up for others, God backfills your cup of blessing. Even gives your cup more capacity. We spend an awful lot of time on the sphere of love, putting ourselves out there, moving away from the sphere of fear towards the sphere of, the sphere of love. I'm talking about sacrifice now. If you give up for others, God backfills your cup of blessing, even gives your cup more capacity. I was thinking about this. As we've learned in the past, love cannot help but express itself. And given God's desire that we live for others, the absolute conclusion then is this. Up here on the board. Godly love is sacrificial. Godly love is sacrificial. By nature, it is supernatural, meaning God is the source of it. Therefore, we must abide in His love as instruments of righteousness to be able to bear good fruit. For example, live sacrificially for others. Again, godly love is sacrificial. So Jesus wasn't just a windbag. Jesus said, if you're focused correctly, then you will live for others. And your flesh will say, there's no way you can do that because i got to make money. i got to take my kids. i got to look good. i gotta blah, blah, blah. I got to enjoy my blessings. That's wrong focus. That's not focusing on the necessary thing. And the only way you're able to stay in that mode is to tap into the supernatural. Because you're never going to want to stay there for very long. You might give it the old college try. But you're never going to be able to stay there very long the way Jesus did perfectly for his entire life. Because it's supernatural. Godly love is supernatural. 
God is the source of it. Therefore, we must abide in his love as instruments of righteousness to be able to bear good fruit. For example, live sacrificially for others. That's what Jesus just said. He said, the Father loves me because I choose to lay down my life for others. Who's going to do that if they're worried about the details of life? Who in here is going to do that? No, you know who you're laying down your life for? You. Your so-called needs that are actually wants. This is about the Ed Collins train. Or the so, I don't want to name any names because people are going, oh. this is about your train. And you've got a direction. And you set that direction probably in school or maybe when you were a kid. And mommy and daddy said, you're such a good little doobie. You keep doing it. The little engine that could. You just keep going in that direction. And it was all a big fat lie meant to enslave you. The only one you've been sacrificing for is you. How do you know? Because those sacrifices are taking you away from your first love. And if it's taking you away from your first love, then it's evil. That's how you know. Jesus didn't get distracted. He helped people like Martha. Your, your, your focus is all wrong. Mary's got it right. That's what he's saying to all of us. All right, that's a lot. So where is this all headed? Back to our key principle up here on the board. Our Lord said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, 21, Luke 12, 34. The point is that, or the point is, the one that came out on Tuesday, I need you to concentrate up here on the board. We're kind of going, trying to pull some of this together now because we're just about getting close to finishing up this series. This came out on Tuesday, perspective. Stay in the sphere of love always, otherwise even our good efforts are self-defeating. 1 Corinthians 13. Go there quickly. Go to 1 Corinthians 13, 1. I just want to grab the supporting highlights from that passage. Stay in the sphere of love always, otherwise even our good efforts are self-defeating. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. Look at verse 8. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. But you know what? Love is eternal. How about verse 13? But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So 1 Corinthians 13 as a whole reminds me of what we read in Revelation 2 about losing our first love. The greatest of these is love. Well, the only way we have godly love is to Abide in the same sphere that our first love is in. Like the church in Ephesus, we may do a lot of divinely good things, but as we just read, without love, the godly ingredient is missing. And this came out on Tuesday up here on the board. If love is absent from a good act, is it godly? It's kind of a rhetorical question. 
If love is absent from a good act, is it godly? I mean, is it godly to walk an old woman across the street? Yeah. Can an unbeliever do it? Yep. Is it godly? No, not really. Not in the sense that we're talking about. So if you do it with that same attitude because you want everybody to look at you, or you want to do it so you feel good, that's always my favorite. Why do you do the things you do? Because I feel good. So it's about you. It's actually not about others. So you can feel good about you because it's always about you, you see. It's you, you, you. You. Always you. Do you actually love the Lord? Do you love to lay down your life for others? Or is this about you? Is it always about you? Do you do the same things in private? Do you pray for that old lady as well? Or do you just blow your own trumpet so that the rest of the world can see you? I don't know. That's between you and the Lord. But if love is absent from a good act, is it godly? You answer that. All right, coming full circle up here on the board. This came out on Tuesday as well. Which do you love more, Jesus' feet or the world's feet? We know the right answer, but which one do you actually cling to on an average day? In other words, at whose feet are you sitting on an average day? That's a fair question for a lot of us, especially those of us well, that work. I mean, especially for those of you that work, like, say, out there, and you put yourself out there all the time. Whose feet are you sitting at? Who do you worship? Some of you have a little compact mirror and go, there's my idol, it's me. Right? You just open up during the day, you pretend you're putting on makeup or whatever. This is what I see Todd doing, you know? Like, he's like, oh, there's my idol. It's just a picture of him. <laughs> Which one do you cling to on an average day? All right, that just about completes our review of this past week. It also connects us back to the idea of stragglers. Remember the straggler principles? The end of summer woes here at North Christian Church. At the end of every summer, it's like a bunch of stragglers coming in and out. And a lot of them don't even show up. Why? You know why. You know exactly why. Because you said, first love, you sit over there while I go enjoy the good weather. Tip a few back. I talk a big game. Um, I sit at the feet of the world for a while. Based on what Holy Scripture tells us, though, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For there are they, these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So we know that, quote, stragglers are merely those of us who are weak and overcome by their flesh's desire to dominate. This is why the Spirit has repeatedly brought up the idea of first love in Revelation 2.4. And this is how we started this evening, with the idea, the concept of a counterfeit love. What is it that has seduced you away from your first love? Be honest, and don't use those ridiculous excuses, like, you know, just because we're masters, if we're masters in anything, right? Is this fair? If we're masters in anything, we're master justifiers. 
We can justify just about anything. I would be willing to, if I was in your head, I don't want to be, but if I was in your head this last almost hour now, guaranteed there have been untold numbers of justifications going on in just a small group of people. Oh, well, you don't know. I got I to gotta do this. I, me, and, me and God are good on this one. Because, you know, I've been talking to God about it. And he says, you know, it, this is all right. I'm going to let this one slide. Because he loves me. Right? And he's going to bless me out so that I can look better than the Joneses because he knows I'm stumbling and he knows I'm weak and he loves me. So he makes special provision for me. He lets me run away. Okay. What kind of husband would do this? He lets me run away with the seducer. And says, I'm good. That's <laughs> oh, good. It's all good. No, I'm good. I'll be here. I'll, I'll just be right here. When you get back, frolicking in the world, adulterating with my enemies, when you get back, I'll be here. Just abuse me. Here, here's a whip. Smack me upside the head. No, seriously. Just, just go and come back. Be, you know, treat me like a rebound guy. Because I love that. Does that sound like God? No, our God is a jealous God. He loves so fiercely that, that fierce love can actually be turned into a form of wrath. <laughs> I love you so much, I'm going to discipline you. Because that's what a good father does. I'm going to break your back. How about that? How dare I saved you. I became a man and died on a cross for you. You're a, you're a harlot. And I decided to marry you. To betroth myself to you. You really think I want you going out with the seducers? With Satan and his crew? You really think I'm okay with that? You really think I give you special provision? Because the Joneses are irritating you? So now I want you to go spend the next year of your life measuring up, working extra hard. You've got to make money, remember? Making ridiculous excuses because that's the kind of perverse, sick love I have for you. This is the, this is the concoction that you've come up with in your life. <laughs> it's laughable, right? That's what we do. Our God is a jealous God, a fierce lover. And Jesus is God, by the way. And he's your husband. And he's not cool with you running around with counterfeit lovers. Counterfeit love, this is the great robber of robbers. Love is the most attractive, motivational emotion of all. The kingdom of darkness knows that if it seduces you from God's sphere of love, it can control every aspect of you. 1 John 4.18 how does it do it? It scares you. Uses fear. We don't have to get into that again. We've sort of beat that horse dead up here on the board. 1 John 5, 3-4. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now I want to give you some solid advice. I, don't, I only have a few minutes left. 
Because some of you right now are saying, all right, I'm convicted. Mm -hmm. I'm a straggler. <laughs> I want to give you some solid advice. Because some of you are convicted and you just don't know where to go. You're saying, okay, that sounds great, but I know for a fact, based on history alone, that as soon as I step off the curb, I'm back to my old life. Right? I'm back to my old life. I do okay in here because this is like a little cocoon, right? Everybody's kind of on the same sheet of music. I'm sort of protected. I feel safe in here. But as soon as I go out there, I don't have the constitution. I'm too weak. As soon as I go out there, I'm like, a, I'm like an addict, right? You can't put a, a crack pipe in front of a crack addict and expect them not to smoke it. They go to a, 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 a place where everybody's overcoming something, they feel protected and safe. You put them out there, they're going to have a problem. They say, well, I don't have the Constitution. Well, you're all crackheads. I mean, in the world. Probably and arguably worse. How many of you right now could quit every want you've got? Not your needs. How many of you could right now quit every want you have? Never shop again. Okay, not even that. Never shop for the next year straight for clothing. <gasps> That's like blasphemy. You wouldn't have the constitution to do it. You'd walk into the mall and go, that one's out. <laughs> right? You guys are laughing, but you're crackheads. How is that any different? I'm serious. How is it any different? Low dose of dopamine versus high dose? Big old hit versus a long, drawn-out hit? Sustained hits? I feel good. I look good in these new jeans. Right? Oh, man, my hair looks good. My, if you got any. My something looks good. My new car looks good. What do you think's going on? What's being released? All the little chemicals in your brain that make you feel good. Right? You don't want to give it up. How are you any different than the worst crackhead that ever lived? You're not. Unless you're able to say right now in your soul, which none of you can, I could give up every want right now for Jesus. <laughs> no way. So, we're all in this boat. If you lack the constitution to overcome your own weaknesses, what do you do? Very simple. Go to God. When in doubt, ask for wisdom. Ask for how? James, that's James 1.5. Ask for wisdom from God. You don't have, it's supernatural. That's why I highlighted super. If you go to the wrong well, you're going to fail. You go to his well in humility, he'll give you it in abundance. He promises. But you've got to have your priorities straight. You've got to have the necessary part, the good part that Mary knew about that Martha was missing. When you have that right, he gives it all to you. But that means you have to sever your ties. Maybe you do have to sell your possessions. I don't know. I'm not going to teach that as a cot blanc thing. But if that's what's keeping you away from freedom in Christ, then you really should sever those things. I call it simplifying. Simplify your life if you have to. I mean, you might be surprised. Um, God, you may go to God and God says, yeah. You might say the exact same thing. You know, it's funny. This is your conversation tonight. Get down and pray to God. It's funny that you come to me because I said it through the, through the ball guy tonight and you didn't listen then. 
So I'll say it again. Do this. All those things that are keeping you away from my son, sever them now. But, 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 don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Do you trust me? Most people walk away. They say, oh, I trust you, Lord, and they walk away. And they, their actions speak so loud that they basically prove themselves liars because they're not willing to give up really anything for their first love. They really do want to treat Jesus Christ like a backup plan, like a rebound guy. Do you know what I'm saying? Isn't that so gross? Doesn't that sound like, I feel like dirty almost, like saying that. I feel gross saying that because I'm actually speaking about myself as well, so I'm not speaking down to you. But this is how we treat our first. He's supposed to be the truest love in our life. No one's going to love us the way he loves us. Is that fair? No one is even remotely as fierce a lover. How many people that claim they love you would die on a cross for you? Seriously. He loves us beyond any possible notion of love, and we choose, on average, counterfeit love. And he's so faithful to us as our husband that he says you can come back every single time. And before you get all crazy and manipulative, may it never be. Don't do that thing with grace. See, I'm showing God's grace because I'm going to be a jackass the rest of my life, and he keeps bringing, he keeps letting me back. So my witness to the world is I'm going to be like the prodigal son. I'm going to like run away and come back and say, oh, glory be to God. Then I'm going to run away like a little whore, and I'm going to come back and glory be to God. And I'm going to keep doing this thing and pretend that that brings glory to God. Meanwhile, as our title says, the world sees the choices we make. And the world says, what is this person doing? They look about as faithful to their so-called Savior as I am to the dog that I can't stand that I kick around in my house. That doesn't look like a good relationship at all. I don't want anything to do with that. That's what the Spirit's saying to us. That's how weak we are. So our only hope, really, is in humility to go to God. To the source of supernatural strength and ability. That's what Jesus did. That's why the Father loved him. He depended wholly on the grace of God for provision, for everything. Why? Because his focus was perfect. Always on the necessary thing. But Jesus, you're going to starve. No, I won't. My food is to do the will of the Father. That's the perspective that we need in our souls. And I believe, as your shepherd, that's the one that we've drifted from as a congregation this summer. It happens every summer. I get it. But you're all weak and you're crackheads. Amen? What's that right there? All right, let's go ahead. Father, thank you so much for being so open and honest with us and direct. Sometimes we just need that snap in the forehead, Father. And we, although it stings, we're grateful. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.